0: Disclaim for everyone, just a side note. I have been listening to this podcast ever since I've met Mike a couple years ago, literally. And I listen to it every single time he drops an episode. So I'm a diehard Strange New Worlds fan. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, great. That's going to be in the episode for sure. <laughs> I love it. Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. One of the greatest joys of being an academic is getting to train the next generation of students in your field. Today on the show, our guest is Kayla Smith, someone who's been a big part of my academic life as an incredible mentee and friend. Kayla is a senior at Central State University in Ohio, and for the past three years, she's done research at Caltech, both remotely and in person over the summer, in the group that I earned my PhD from, and still participate in remotely. Under the guidance of Dr. Danica Adams, Kayla's done exciting research in the realm of atmospheric chemistry particularly the atmospheric chemistry of Mars, which we'll talk about a little bit today. And with me, Kayla's been a part of an interdisciplinary team of scholars thinking deeply about what it means to be an Earth-like planet. We'll talk a little bit about that too. Also, throughout her time working with me, Kayla's expressed an interest in learning more about Star Trek. And on this podcast we'll talk about her very first exposure to the Star Trek universe. But most excitingly, Kayla Smith was just accepted into graduate school to pursue her PhD in planetary science. So as one of her mentors, I took this opportunity to ask Kayla to beam aboard Strange New Worlds to celebrate with all of us and share everything that is going on through her mind at this moment. Engage! Kayla Smith, welcome to Strange New Worlds.
0: Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. (laughs)
1: yeah of course so um kayla you recently watched your very first episode of star trek this was the star trek the next generation episode titled suspicions i believe it was season six episode 22 and um let me just for the audience's sake um introduce how why why we're even talking about this episode right so you've been asking like i want to start watching Star Trek, but I don't know where. And whenever anybody comes up to me with that question, because there are like over 800 episodes of Star Trek and 13 movies, (laughs) it's very difficult to know where to tell somebody to start. So what I try to do is I ask them about like some other show or movie that they really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And then base my recommendation off of that, because there's such a diversity of Star Trek out there, many different flavors and genres. Um, and so you told me that you like Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. Um, and I got to admit, I've actually never seen Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> but I know it has a reputation for being an excellent TV show starring mm-hmm. very strong brilliant female leads who are mm-hmm. like medical doctors. So yeah. I figured based on that scant knowledge of what, what I know about Grey's Anatomy, I would recommend an episode to you of Star Trek that starred Dr. Beverly Crusher. And so that's why we watched um, the TNG episode, Suspicions. And it's been a while since I've seen this episode. So I had a lot of fun rewatching it. Kayla, what did you think?
0: just a disclaimer for everyone i did not grow up in a very science fiction loving family so i quite frankly didn't even know much about star trek until i met mike a few years ago um i had watched star wars before i had uh watched little science fiction things here and there but not really like indulged in science fiction and so I am an obsessive Grey's Anatomy watcher, it's really bad, uh, but I literally love it so much. And when Mike recommended this uh, show for me, I was like, okay, awesome, it's gonna be a doctor, some medical stuff, that's cool. But when I first watched it, I was like, whoa, okay, this is coming completely different than I would have ever expected Star Trek to be, just because one, I learned that every Star Trek episode is like its it's own thing, it's not like a a continuation of a plot, so that was really interesting to me. Um, But two, the end of the, Episode was just like what? (laughs) Like it just blew my mind. (laughs) I I love medical mysteries. I love when doctors like actually try to figure out what's wrong with a patient. But to mix that with a potential murder is just insane. So I thought it was amazing. I literally audibly gasped at the end. I literally texted Mike right after. I'm like, I just gasped. (laughs) It was it was amazing, and I I learned so much about how. The intersection again between science and culture. I know we'll talk about that a little bit later, but seriously, like that was a really big thing that I learned in that episode. So I thought it was amazing. The acting was phenomenal. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg, like she killed it. I was like, hey, yeah. okay, really? like awesome. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I just, I really enjoyed it.
1: That interplay between science and culture, that was one thing that I didn't really remember too sharply about this episode. So when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, you know, Beverly Crusher actually makes a really sketchy decision to like do do an autopsy on this person who ends up we find find out later that you know she was right he was murdered but his family had a cultural practice where you're not supposed to touch the dead body before they get to perform their rituals but beverly just needed to get to the bottom of this and and i felt like ooh that wasn't Necessarily the right move in the moment, although it ended up leading to to the end. so that kind of tension really makes you think I think one of the the, the best things about Star Trek is it often makes me think, yeah. what would I do in that situation
0: exactly. right, right, right. It really just showed how you listen to your gut, your intuition, but it's also like, you want to make sure that you're ruling everything out. And the fact that there was a murder on board a ship, which is not a big city, it's a ship in a confined space that's already like a really bad situation so i i commend her for following her her gut and kind of following what her intuition was telling her um no matter how sketchy it was i mean she really did defy some rules define some she just she was just badass that's the bottom line and i thought <laughs> it was great so yeah that's that was my impression i loved it and i'll be watching more
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely I mean, I'm glad to hear that you'll be watching more. And what I took away from the episode, rewatching it this time around was like that perseverance that Beverly showed, right? Like, yes, she made a mistake and she had to take responsibility for that and own up to it. And But she still had to get to the bottom of this medical yeah. mystery because yeah. that's what drives her, that curiosity and that sense of justice, right? Yes, um, yeah. And also her friendship with Whoopi Goldberg's character, Guinan was yeah. so powerful. I feel like that also speaks to The importance of finding that support network, those friends and colleagues who will, you know, give you a little nudge along the way when you're feeling depressed or down and say, hey, no, get back on your feet, do your job, like get to the bottom of this because I can tell it's eating you up
0: yeah and and at the end it t- it just i cackled she was like oh i brought you a new tennis racket for your for your test she's like i don't play tennis <laughs> <laughs> a real friend right there like she really wanted her to follow her gut and do her job and whether that meant she got kicked off the ship and was fired she knew that she had achieved justice which was awesome so
1: mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. well i'm glad you enjoyed the episode kayla yeah, yeah it was amazing <laughs> Chief medical officer's log, start at 46831.2. I've been reinstated and I will be resuming my duties shortly. In the meantime, I have a personal matter to attend to. Hi, Guinan. Hello. Ooh. Somebody's birthday? Not unless it's yours. It's for you. For me? What's the occasion? It's a thank you for giving me a good kick in the butt. Oh, now, I didn't, uh. Now, I did some research. This is the latest design, state of the art. It is specifically designed to cushion all vibrations so you will never have tennis elbow again. (sighs) Thank
0: you, Doctor. This looks like a great racket, but uh, I don't play tennis. Never have.
1: Speaking of following your gut and, you know, finding your path amongst the stars, we are talking to you uh, very shortly after a very momentous occasion in your life. You just got into grad school, Kayla, for planetary (laughs) science. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So when you got that first acceptance email, what emotions were pouring through you?
0: Yeah, so I was actually sitting in my best friend at school, her office, and I was crocheting. I love to crochet. Uh, That's just a little hobby I picked up. And I was crocheting, and I checked my email religiously, and I just refreshed my email. And I got this email, and I'm like, oh my gosh. I was like, okay, everyone stop talking. No one breathes. And I opened the email, and it was like, congratulations. And i felt overjoyed nervous excited and everything in between i felt like wow this is actually happening and this is a journey i started really close to three years ago and it was something that i knew i wanted to pursue uh, but it was also very nerve-wracking to do it and it was a very big decision to make um but it all paid off in the end and i was just oh, so excited and i just wanted to tell everyone right then and there and um, I was actually talking to Mike about this a couple of days ago. And once you get those acceptances, once everything starts to seem like it's falling into place, you start to question like, OK, now i have to like do what i say i was gonna do like am i actually a scientist like what's going on and (laughs) (laughs) that sense of imposter syndrome kind of crept in on me and um it was something i wasn't really quite expecting to happen because i had worked so hard to get here and all my uh, fruits of my labor was actually paying off but it was something that i had to deal with and i was constantly just you know kind of telling myself, like, I earned this, I worked for this, I did this, and I deserve to be in the space that I am now. I deserve to be surrounded by other scientists because I am a scientist and kind of just telling myself affirmations like that. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of everything. So I would just, all in all, I would just kind of classify it as a big emotional pool. That's how I would kind of say it, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of good things, a lot of scary things, but all good, all things that needed to happen.
1: You mentioned imposter syndrome and, um, you know, believe it or not, Kayla, that is something that I live with every single day too. Mm -hmm. imposter Mm -hmm. syndrome is not something that goes away ever, honestly. And, um, you know, it's one of those tricky counterintuitive things where, you know, the higher you climb, the more intense that gets right. It it doesn't actually get better. It kind of gets worse as you continue to rack up achievements and uh, progress further into your career. So. I've started to view imposter syndrome as kind of like a friend that kind of follows me around. And whenever they pop up back in my life, I use that reminder. I say, hi, imposter syndrome. Um, I'm glad you're here because that means, you know, you showing up, that means, that I'm doing something amazing. That means that I'm doing something good, and it, it is still scary. You know, will I live up to these uh, big dreams of mine? But I've tried to find a way to live with my own imposter syndrome and see it as a reminder that I'm striving for ever and ever more, uh, instead of you know continuing to 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 fail. Um, but actually, a sign that I'm succeeding
0: exactly yeah and it's funny that you say that i was really thinking about this last night honestly and it's such a beautiful thing to be able to dream and to think big and i you know was sitting there and i'm like i have all these things i want to accomplish from now until i retire and i was like if i don't get to accomplish anything on this list or everything on this list or some things on this list. I want to just be able to create a segue for future students of all different backgrounds to be able to just pick up where I left off. And I feel like that's the mindset I'm kind of going into grad school with. And I think that that's just such a really good mindset because science and looking for life out there is not something that one person can do alone. It's not something that one person can do in their entire career. It's something that's going to take decades and decades and decades. And I think that creating a segue um, for imposter syndrome to slip in and be your friend or to get a segue for students to slip in and, you know, pick up where you left off. All of that is necessary. And um, it's a really, really, really big accomplishment that I hope to achieve throughout grad school and in the rest of my career.
1: I know you will. (laughs) (laughs) So as one of your research mentors, Kayla, I was lucky enough to be able to read your personal statements as you were applying to grad school. And one of my favorite lines in your personal statement went like this, quote, I'd equate my start in space to that of a big ball of hydrogen, not knowing it was waiting for the right spark to turn it into a brilliant star that provides light and warmth to billions of microbes somewhere in the vast unknown. Wow. (laughs) It's a beautiful sentence. So appropriate for your dreams and ambitions of being a planetary scientist and astrobiologist, but also it speaks about you and your journey so i'm wondering kayla tell us a little bit more about this spark that sent you this path in space exploration that turned you into the star that you are today
0: yeah well thank you and thank you for reading my application uh, materials and just providing great feedback and writing recommendation letters. I appreciate all of that. Um, So yeah, so I guess I'll give a little background about how I got to the point where I'm applying for PhD programs. So in my late stages of high school, junior year, I decided I wanted to apply to enlist in the United States Armed Forces, specifically the Air Force, and I wanted to be a space systems operator. So I'd always loved space. I had always had an interest. I had always watched space documentaries with my family but it was something I didn't really know how to navigate towards. I didn't really know how to make a career out of that, a career out of honestly a hobby. And so I decided, okay, well what better way to just kind of like, wiggle my way into the military and hopefully land somewhere in NASA at some point, right? Um, But that didn't work out just because I did not pass the physical exam due to my eyesight. And so I was kind of sitting here the last stages of my senior year, and I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. So I ended up applying to Central State University, which is where I am now, getting an environmental engineering degree. And I knew that engineering could take me somewhere. Again, I didn't know quite how that was gonna lead me into space. I didn't, again, had no idea what you're supposed to major in. I, I literally had no idea what was going on at this point. Um, I was just kind of taking a leap of faith on me and a leap of faith on uh, my brain and hopefully I can make it through college. And so, And that was kind of a good mindset to have just because I didn't know life was going to drastically change for everyone a year later with the pandemic. And so the pandemic hit and it's my sophomore year and I'm like, I have no research experience, no internship experience. I don't know how I'm going to get any of those things because we're in a global pandemic. I literally can't even go outside to, you know, barely go to the grocery store, let alone go to an internship. And so my academic advisor at the time he emailed me and he's like hey uh you have really great grades i noticed that um well i know that you had mentioned you wanted to study space at some point um i was wondering if this internship might interest you and it was an internship with caltech and i was like okay great i had a quick google search of caltech i had no idea what caltech was <laughs> turned out to be like the best space science institute like in the world so i was like are you sure you want me to do this and he's like yeah you, you can handle it i i completely believe in you so i took a leap of faith and i started interning with caltech and my first summer was absolutely amazing it was difficult it was nerve-wracking but i have the best mentors on the face of this planet i am not biased that is the truth at the end of that summer my mentor dr danica adams she emails me and she's like hey do you want to continue to work with us during the school year and i'm like is she really asking me like she really wants to keep working with me like are you sure and <laughs> like, yeah i would love to like you're amazing and you're just always open to learn so i think that's where my spark actually started was when she offered to work with me throughout the rest of the school year but it was like i had worked so hard i had worked so diligently to get to this point. And for someone like her to realize that, and for someone like her to notice that, and for someone like Dr. Yuck Young to notice that, that was something I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. And maybe I can kind of find my way into space sciences. And from that point forward, that spark kind of just kept driving me that, um, not the reassurance, I don't want to say like, you want to be validated by other people, but your hard work is actually paying off in a way that you could have never imagined. That spark and that uh, that mindset kind of just drove me into the end zone essentially. So um, that's how I always like to tell people, like if something like that comes in, to your life and something like that that you know would have never happened in a billion years it just by so by chance it happened you always take it and you always just never pass up opportunities like that and so yeah that's how i would kind of equate that spark and i knew that um, my dreams of being a space scientist would come true eventually i didn't just i didn't know how and now i know and it's possible for anyone
1: i love that so much because that spark was a little bit of luck a Mm -hmm. lot of perseverance and then that reflection to realize wait i went straight through that open door and i accomplished a goal you know Mm -hmm. at the end of the summer doing research and you looked Mm -hmm. back on that and you realized wait that's what it takes to be a scientist and i've got that because i just did it that was the spark that got you to realize wait If I can do that, I can do the next thing. And then the next thing after that, ah, that is so, so great.
0: I even tell my nieces and nephews and my little cousins, I'm like, no matter what you wanna do in life, if you just have the passion for it and you want to do it, it will happen for you. I can't tell you when, I can't tell you how, but I know if you keep that perseverance within you, it will happen eventually. And, you know, I've always was told that as a kid, but you never wanna listen to your parents when they say stuff like that and all motivational. You're like, oh no, that's never gonna happen. Or I'm never gonna be this, I'm never gonna be that. Well, if you keep dreaming, you just might
1: okay let's talk about some of this research that you did with dr danica adams at caltech your research during your undergrad years focused largely on the planet mars kayla what about mars fascinates you so much
0: yeah so i actually had to write myself a list (laughs) I (laughs) I
1: the mars love list (laughs) yes
0: i may be a little biased but Mars is so beautiful because it's the one planet in our solar system that we know had surface liquid water at one point in its lifetime. And um, for everyone out there that's not an astronomer or planetary science or astrobiologist, having surface liquid water on a planet is huge. Like that's absolutely huge. And that's one of the big founding fathers of how life can emerge or originate on a planet. And so. To know that Mars once had surface liquid waters is already like, whoa, like that's insane. Um, but two, I like to call it an inverse Earth because Earth started in a very molten, very hot, not, habitable for life at all way at the beginning of its lifetime. And it kind of evolved to this place where we live, we drive cars, we breathe. And Mars is kind of the opposite of that. It started off as this, you know, warmer, had a thicker, denser atmosphere. It once had surface liquid water. So life um, as we know it, we don't know, could have thrived, but life of some sort, Um, we're hoping to find traces of that now. Um, But even over its lifetime, it's gotten significantly colder. The atmosphere is really, really thin. So life as we know, it cannot exist on Mars today. But to know that it, it could have was just amazing to me. And so to me, that is so astonishing that Mars could have had life. And to know that that life could have There's many different hypotheses of of how life kind of originated on Earth. It could have hitched a ride from Mars. Uh, There could have been like little asteroids floating from Mars that smashed into Earth. Like there could have been all these different things that could have happened to how life originated on Earth, but it can tell us so much about how life is today by studying Mars. And so that is the first planet that I fell in love with because that's the first planet that I was introduced with on a very intimate level. Um, But that just really sparked my enjoyment for looking for these biosignatures and looking for these traces of life elsewhere in the universe so i know that kind of leads into another uh, topic we we're going to discuss later on but yeah i i just mars is beautiful and it's amazing and it can tell us so much about our solar system and even our
1: home yeah and like you said you know water in liquid form once existed on Mars. Now, not really, a lot of it is frozen, a tiny bit of it's in the atmosphere. And that's the part that you studied for this paper that you have currently under peer review. You modeled how water vapor gets destroyed in Mars's atmosphere. So why did you undertake this research question and what did you discover, Kayla?
0: Yeah, so it's actually really interesting. Water has a tendency to escape a planet in multiple different ways. It can escape to space, and we know that a lot of it did escape to space on Mars. It can sink into the ground and kind of form these geological features that we know water paved, and a lot of that uh, did happen on Mars as well. And a lot of studies have actually studied that. Um, so I wanted to understand how much that water actually escaped to space from the point where Mars is going through its evolutionary changes. And so It has been a very pivotal point in my research journey because it has showed me the importance of studying a singular molecule that can open up doors to so much more within a planet. So we look at the simple thing like water, two hydrogens, one oxygen. That's literally the uh, central basis of how we are able to exist and live. To know that it can escape to space and literally space is just a huge vacuum. It can literally just spew out into space and essentially be useless at that point what causes that escape to space and so our project was essentially looking at water vapor and how it can affect the near surface chemistry atmospheric chemistry of mars and how that escape to space can actually affect things like carbon monoxide on mars or nitric acid on mars and so Essentially, we found that the escape to space of water vapor actually did impact near surface chemistry quite a bit. And we also looked at dust storms. So how dust storms are currently active on Mars today, how that could eventually, you know, help more of those water molecules escape to space as well. And so all this, all of this project essentially taught me that Water is huge and the escape to space ratios are heavily impacted um, due to dust storms, due to geologic changes, due to atmospheric changes, and it actually does impact near-surface chemistry of Mars significantly. Hopefully we can publish this soon and everyone can get a chance to read it, Um, but it's been a pleasure to work on it and it's been a pleasure to learn more about our next door neighbor Mars in terms of its habitability. And hopefully I can do more projects like this in the future, um, especially on Mars, but uh, more specifically, maybe on exoplanets.
1: Mm, What a great transition to my next question. (laughs) Um, Because I know, having read your research statements, how much you want to jump into this wide open realm of exoplanets. Take what you've learned about studying planets through your work on mars and extend that into this realm of planets orbiting other stars of which we know more than 5500 at this point in time and many more on their way um these are basically the strange new worlds that star trek is all about exploring kayla what motivates you to leap from our next door planet mars to the wide open field of exoplanets
0: yeah so that is an excellent question mike so studying exoplanets has been at the realm of space science since we could actually launch a telescope and actually take pictures of planets beyond earth like that's been a literal thing since hubble like we want to understand how many planets are in the universe we want to understand how many of those planets could potentially be habitable um and it's even more apparent now today at present with the james Webb space telescope and so One of the biggest things that I love and that I have have learned throughout the past year or so is the Drake equation. The Drake equation was developed by Frank Drake, and essentially it's an equation that's more like a framework that wants to explain if we were to find all these exoplanets, how many of them are habitable? How many of them are, you know, in the habitable zones within their uh, host star orbits? And all those things, there's many more variables in there. Um, but essentially that equation kind of trendsetted my love for looking for exoplanets, but not only looking for exoplanets, but looking for habitable exoplanets. And so my motto has always been understanding the possibility or actual finding of life elsewhere in the universe will actually humble us as life on earth. So if we understood how life emerges elsewhere in the universe that could drastically help us understand how life emerged on Earth. And so Mars is, you know, our closest next door neighbor. has the most clues to past life, and so that's why um, it's it's really easy. It's very simple to kind of transition between Earth and Mars. But how beautiful is it that we can transition from Mars to like WASP forty seven, or WASP forty seven E, or something like that? Like that's just <laughs> insane. And so the leaps that we've have been able to take over the decades have just been literally no pun intended, no, no pun intended, astronomical. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's literally been such a huge transition from earth to mars to whatever else is out there and so um that's why i want to look for exoplanets that's why i want to study exoplanets because um it can tell so much about how life emerged and i yeah that's just a long-winded way of saying exoplanets are cool and everyone should study them
1: (laughs) (laughs) you'll get no argument from me kayla (laughs) So we were both at the Sagan Summer Workshop at Caltech last year, which was a conference all about exoplanet atmospheres i helped to run social media for this event so i was buzzing around interviewing people about how their meeting was going and when i asked you to summarize the meeting on the last day you said quote my favorite thing was learning how new technologies lead to new questions we could not have thought up before this conference was so full of hope of optimism of tomorrows. Again, another just extraordinarily poetic quote from you, Kayla. Um, Talk to me about this hope, this optimism, this sense of tomorrow, because these words seem like perfect ways to describe both where you are at in your career right now, uh, at the edge of transitioning, you know, between undergrad and graduate school, and Mm -hmm. also where the whole field of astrobiology is
0: yeah yeah so first of all this was such an amazing workshop i encourage anyone who studies exoplanets or is in the pasadena area or whatever go you will not regret it it was amazing um secondly the main thing i have learned while studying planetary science and biology is that you have to be hopeful optimistic and look forward to tomorrow. We are not in a field of instant gratification. We're not in a field of we're going to look at something and then automatically get an answer. We may be looking for the same thing for our entire careers. You have to be hopeful and optimistic that you will get there one day, even if it's not you that achieves it. And so having that sense of selflessness and that sense of um, sharing and just openness to collaboration, that's huge within planetary science and biology, And so this conference showed me obviously it was it was focused strictly on exoplanet atmospheres but it showed me that not only are we up to 5000 plus exoplanets we're up to 5000 plus atmospheres that's open to study like how beautiful is that and how you have to look at these things from two sides of the same coin you have to look at both sides because if you look at just the one side of finding life you may be discouraged and you may not get there in your career and so Everyone at the at the workshop was just so optimistic. Even though we haven't found this life, we have so many clues. We have gained so we have gained five thousand clues, even from the smallest clue to the biggest clue. We have gained those clues. I'm also so hopeful and optimistic because we are constantly moving in the right direction. Even if we're not moving towards absolute like this is life, we are moving towards some sort of truth at some point. It may happen tomorrow. It may happen in ten years. It may happen in a hundred thousand years. It may never happen. We may never get there as humanity. But to know that we are making strides by building telescopes and technologies and training students like me to do this work is just absolutely amazing. And so even though, you know, finding life would be really cool, I mean, come on, it still is something that is a work in progress. And being optimistic and hopeful and looking forward to tomorrow is honestly what's going to get me out of bed every day. So.
1: (laughs) Wow. I love that quote that we're not in a field of instant gratification. Yeah, It's so fascinating to me because we live in a world of instant gratification. And yet our professional jobs is to think about something that, like you said, we may never end up finding. And so it does yeah. take that kind of hope and optimism to be in the field of astrobiology, to seek out new life when we don't even know if new life is out there wow yeah
0: i honestly think it's very courageous as well i think it's I think it's very courageous for us to be on the surface of Earth looking for that life, as well as astronauts at some point even you know going to Mars and going farther than Mars. I think both of those perspectives are just so courageous because we're all in this together. That may sound very corny, but we are all in this together. And NASA, SpaceX, Carnegie, uh academic institutions, all of these places are just looking for the same thing, just different approaches and different perspectives of doing so. And so yeah, I think. it's just where we live in a world like you said with we can just send a tweet we can send a text we're literally on you know zoom right now doing this so it's we're all we're always looking for the answer right there and being in a field that that is just nearly impossible i think that that is what makes it beautiful
1: and it's so so beautiful that you do see all of these traits that most people would not initially think of when they Think of what it takes or what the qualities of a scientist should be, right? Usually people think, okay, you got to be really smart, you know, and you've got to be really technically minded. You have to have like a logical brain. But you're talking about hope and optimism and courage, right? And these are things that are just as essential, if not more essential to the field of astrobiology than, you know, just having book smarts and being able to solve a differential equation or run some computer code, right?
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay. So you and I, Kayla, are collaborators on a paper about what it means to be an Earth-like planet. You joined this project in a very interesting manner immediately after I gave a talk at the 2022 American Geophysical Union fall meeting. You basically like intercepted me (laughs) as I was coming off the stage and told me very boldly, You know, speaking of that courage again, uh, that that you wanted to join my team and pursue this project to reconceptualize what it means to be an Earth-like planet. So, Kayla, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about this Earth-likeness paper, as we call it, and especially why it means so much to you?
0: Well, first, I'm so excited for this paper to finally be published. It was just accepted. So that's
1: yeah,
0: um, and I can hardly contain my excitement. It's, it's just it's so, so, so good for so many reasons. Um, again, like my other Mars question, I have a lot of I have a list here, but uh, I'll try to <laughs> keep it brief. Um, but essentially, this paper is highlighting the interdisciplinary approaches in defining what an Earth like planet is. We purposely move away from strict, rigid kind of boxed in definitions and to move towards uh, tentative criteria of what we could essentially define an Earth-like planet. And so that can mean, you know, a planet's size, a planet is in a habitable zone, it could mean if it has surface liquid water, it could mean if it has a dense or thin atmosphere, but it could also mean other things. And in the paper, you'll see that. Um, and this paper has meant so much to me because, I have been able to work with scientists of all different backgrounds, ethically, racially, um, you know, uh, the sexualities of all the authors and even the scientific disciplines of all the authors. And so there's a ecologist, there's an evolutionary biologist, there's a chemist, there's a planetary scientist, an astrobiologist, like there's so many people in this paper, even though there's only five authors, there's so many people, but only five authors. And that was the one thing that I just absolutely loved about our paper is the sense that we made sure that the audience knew who was writing the paper and what our intentions were with the paper. And so we actually, this is another one of the things I love about the paper, um, we wrote positionality statements. We wrote how individually, how each of us fit into uh, the world of planetary science or space sciences as a whole. And so that was another thing that I absolutely loved about um, the paper, and that actually didn't get added until I was um, added to the project, which is really cool. I got to be a part of that. Um, and then I also loved that the paper incorporated cultural aspects and how we define life on Earth and how we potentially find life elsewhere. Um, and this can mean cultural approaches, uh, principles, and perspectives to how to seek out new life and how to treat life once we find it. And so literally a whole section of the paper is geared towards cultural aspects of how we define earth likeness. And again, if you haven't gotten the gist, this paper is very interdisciplinary. It's, very, it's a very broad spectrum of scientific and cultural understanding. And it's something that um, probably one of the best things I have ever been able to work on in my entire life. And it will definitely be something I hold very close to my heart for the rest of my career because it's something that I advocate for. I want to add cultural and uh, science and I want to bridge that gap. I want to be a part of that intersection. So it's just been amazing. And this paper is so beautiful. And it's something that you will learn a lot from scientifically and culturally.
1: And I feel like we wrote it in a way that because it has so you know many different disciplines contributing to it, our audience is going to be very wide as well. And so hopefully we wrote it in a way that anybody can pick up this paper and learn from it. It's not steeped in too much jargon. And even in the places where it might be, this glossary that uh, was another one of your major contributions, Kayla, will help people digest the prose that we that we wrote. And so, I really think this paper wouldn't be what it is today without your contributions, Kayla. You are absolutely an essential player because you helped us see where you know some of my biases in terms of oh, like I'm just typing away in my mm-hmm. own kind of like planetary science astrobiology jargon, and you're able to pull me out of that and say, hey, wait, that doesn't make sense, Mike. Yeah, and you you. You initiated this glossary, you also initiated this beautiful connection between our group and Dr. Daryl Riano at uh, ASU, Arizona State University, who is an earth scientist but also an indigenous earth scientist and trying to make that connection, that cultural connection between you know, what we're trying to say within a dominant sort of western scientific framework looking at what it means to be an earth-like exoplanet and right. also trying to bridge that gap to other ways of knowing, other ways of understanding right. what it means to be an earth-like planet that was so powerful as well
0: yeah and that was something that i so typically i'm very nervous to approach anyone right so me coming up to you at agu was big for me because it was something that like i haven't even started writing a paper at that point i had no idea how to write an academic paper but i knew that i had to be on this in some way shape or form because it was going to drastically change the planetary science world. Like that's just the bottom line. And so when we got to the cultural part, um, Mike was right, like we're all coming from our own different biases and perspectives. And we needed someone to kind of pull us into a more, I guess, holistic perspective. And Dr. Giorgiano did that for us. He he helped us kind of gear our paper in a more, you know, culturally appropriate way. Um, and it was something that needed to happen. And again, Nurturing and watering those relationships that mean a lot to you, will they will always come in handy. Like I met Dr. Rieno a couple years ago um, after hearing one of his students give a talk at AbSciCon, the Astrobiology Science Conference in May of 2022, and his student gave a talk on how to teach inmates space sciences, and I was like, "What?" Like that just blew my mind because I had never heard of someone willingly, you know what I mean? Like not get paid nothing, willingly go into a prison and teach inmates space science. That was just a huge thing for me because it's, it's so important to me to bridge that gap between people of all walks of life with our, you know, hardcore sciences. And so I reached out to Dr. Rieno after that and it was, it's been history ever since. I kept in touch with him. I watered that relationship and he has been just such a, such a star in my life and he has helped me tremendously not only with this project but with graduate school and everything in between so again for everyone out there nurture and water those relationships i mean a lot to you because they will come in handy i promise
1: one thing that stands out to me about you kayla is just how much you really love and thrive at the intersection of science and the humanities. Honestly, I've never seen this in somebody that is at your career stage, really just taking that to heart and trying to make a difference in both kinds of fields. So another one of my favorite lines from your personal statement is, quote, reflecting on my passion for planetary science, its service to the community can be perceived as an art the sense of wonder about other life in the universe, and the escape from reality feeling of smallness when studying such vast planets, end quote. And Kayla, I just love this statement because I've often felt guilty, honestly, as a scientist, that my hard work, my scientific discoveries, the papers that, you know, five people read <laughs> in the world, <laughs> they don't do very much to help Most people here on Earth, you know, I've often thought maybe I should have been a medical doctor or a climate change researcher or maybe, you know, even a bricklayer makes a bigger difference in people's lives than I do. But your personal statement, Kayla, made me rethink that. This idea that planetary science is a form of community service because it is an art. Oh, my goodness. Tell me more about that.
0: Yeah, so I have to give so much credit to Dr. Danica Adams for helping me with this sentence in particular, because I was honestly stumped how to incorporate my love for outreach and humanities with my science. And I knew that in my personal statement, it would not be Kayla's personal statement if I did not write something along those lines. And so I wanna say thank you to her because I was stumped and it's hard because like you said you don't have many references not many people are as enthralled and as enthused about this intersection like me so i'm going to take a step back a little bit and i want to quote you mike because oh, okay. <laughs> i read your uh your interview with a researcher at carnegie it was in like 2021 and it's, it's online guys i don't know if we'll, he'll put it in the show notes probably but here's mike's quote it was beautiful quote when we seek what we might be out there we are forced to reflect on what we are when we ask what makes other planets habitable, we become more attuned to how we are wrecking the only planet we can live on when we think about exploring outer space we are reminded of the harmful ways in which our ancestors explored the globe for greed and domination unquote i mean come on like that's that's perfect right and that's something that literally i read this i read your interview maybe a year and a half ago and i think that's this quote not even joking is what made me feel comfortable with expressing my love for outreach community service at the intersection of my scientific research it really did um i understand how important it was and so i've always been told that my science or any science means nothing if you're if you are unable to communicate it and on a more broad and more general sense, nothing means nothing if you can't communicate it. And so the planets we study, the peop- the work we do helps humanity in all ways and shapes and forms. Understanding how Earth is impacted by floating asteroids or the energy given off by the sun, like we have to know that information. But not everybody knows that information. You have to be able to communicate it. And so as far as astrobiology goes, every planet that we discover, every planet that we are able to study in great detail, tells us something about our home planet. Despite what some people may think, Earth is a part of the universe in which we are studying. It's a part of this universe that we are involved in on a daily basis. Everything is tied together in the great cosmic space. Everything is essentially connected. And so Sorry, that was a little quote I wrote myself. Um, I know we may feel a little guilty. I know we may feel a little out of the box what we study, but I promise, Mike, and you helped me realize this, everything that we do means something and it will tell us so much about life on earth. And so that's another big reason why um, I advocate so much for my fellow undergrads and even high schoolers. I always tell them to you know, water your hobbies and your extracurricular activities, even while conducting science or doing research or whatever you may do, always do that because it will always come in handy, and it will make you a more well-rounded person, scientist, researcher, whatever it may
1: be. Mm, so profound, and I am just so flattered to have been a point of inspiration for you because you are somebody who inspires me. You know, mm-hmm. one of one of the greatest things about being in academia is that I get to be inspired by you know people who are many decades older than me. Uh, and all of their accomplishments and the way that they've changed the field. Mm -hmm. But I am equally, if not more, so inspired by the people who I work with who are younger than me, who are coming Mm -hmm. up and are going to change the field in all sorts of ways to make it even better in the decades to come. And you are definitely one of them. I I know you are an inspiration, (laughs) not just to me, but to our entire research team. And I know that you're going to continue to go on and inspire so many more people to follow in your footsteps, Kayla my last question for you is if you could give our listeners who are interested in pursuing planetary science and astrobiology one piece of advice Mm -hmm. what would it be
0: (laughs) well thank you so much mike i appreciate you so much and um it's just been an honor to learn from you and grow with you and it's just it's just such an honor and i think that to be a part of a group that genuinely cares about you as a scientist and as a person is something that is just I will never take for granted. And if you everyone out there, if you're able to be in a group like that, I highly recommend again, water those relationships. Um, Okay, so to the advice, I couldn't come up with just one.
1: So I have, (laughs) of course, of course, you couldn't Kayla. (laughs) (laughs) This is the most Kayla thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
0: my gosh, I was see, I was like, just one. That's, that's hard. Um, Uh but i'll I'll start by saying this one this is probably my favorite where you start does not define where you finish right so i'm an engineering major i am literally learning about wastewater groundwater how to make structures more suitable for humanity you know the direct you know helping humanity hands-on that's my degree and i'm literally i got accepted into a planetary science like grad program studying exoplanet atmospheres that's you know that's a big gap right and I noticed that about halfway through undergrad that just because I started here does not mean I have to finish here. And just because I, you know, go into grad school and do this thing does not mean I can't do other things in the future. I can literally be whatever I want to be. So not only am I being trained as an engineer, but I'm also a planetary scientist, an astrobiologist. Like I'm also I'm multiple things and I can be defined as multiple things. And so I will say, do not limit yourself to your college degree. If you go to trade school, do not limit yourself to your, you know, your trade school degree. None of that. Like, literally just keep your mind and your heart open because I promise you, wherever you start does not mean you have to finish there um okay and then my last my last last thing take advantage of all the opportunities that put you closer to your goals and you will come across the right person or people again as i stated before my whole story was not linear or straightforward i didn't major in planetary science i didn't major in physics I, i didn't major in chemistry um but i'm literally surrounded by people that are and people that accept me for being an engineer, but also accept me for being a planetary science and natural biologist. And so literally just take advantage of all the people that want to be there for you, even if they're not doing what you want to do right then, because I promise you they will connect you. How, again, I don't know. When? Again, I don't know, but it will happen because it happened to me. And all the stars just kind of aligned. So just take advantage and again, I know I said this 50 times, but water those relationships. That's literally the biggest reason why I'm here today.
1: That is so lovely and a great place to end it.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It was so much fun.
1: Of course, Kayla. Thank you so much for being on Strange New Worlds. As you just heard, Kayla is one of the most talented, insightful, optimistic, and poetic people I have ever met. And she's just a senior in college. I wish when I was entering grad school, that I was 10% as prepared as she is now. Few things make me as hopeful for the future of my field than talking to Kayla Smith, one of the rising stars in planetary science and astrobiology, and someone whom I am so proud to call a mentee, a colleague, and a friend. I don't think Kayla will mind me sharing that she didn't just get into grad school. She has multiple offers from some of the top planetary science programs in the country, and I am so excited to watch her take her next step and find out what she does next. By the way, I've put a link to my Carnegie Postdoc Spotlight, that interview of mine that Kayla quoted, in the show notes in case you want to check it out. Next time on Strange New Worlds, we'll be speaking with science writer and fellow Trekkie Jamie Green about her elegant and stirring book, The Possibility of Life, Science, Imagination, and Our Quest for Kinship in the Cosmos. On the programming side, I have a bunch of travel coming up in February, so Jamie's episode probably won't drop until March. That means you have time to go to your local bookstore and pick up The Possibility of Life. If you enjoy the intersection between science and science fiction, I guarantee you are going to love this book. So give it a read before returning here for a discussion with the author in March. Until then, stay safe, stay curious, and I'll see you out there. I have a surprise question for you. Are you ready? Oh, yeah. <laughs> We've name-dropped Danica Adams several times here. It's been many years since she was on the show. I think she came on in 2018. My question for you is what is your favorite thing about working with Danica?
0: Wow. Oh my gosh. Mike, why do you just say one? <laughs> <I don't... laughs> um, wow. So Danica has been. Ugh, I don't want to get emotional. Why am I getting emotional? (laughs) You guys are just amazing. Um, Danica has been the driving force in my... I guess my confidence within science, because every time I'm like, oh, this isn't great or oh, this isn't good, even to this day, she's like, no, it's fine, we'll, we'll fix it. Or, oh no, it's fine, it's okay, we'll get there. She always is so optimistic on behalf of me and on behalf of all of her students. She all is always encouraging me, the first to say congratulations, like she's just always in my corner. Um, and so she got her PhD back in May and Mike texts me, he's like, are you going to her dissertation defense? And I'm like, yeah, like done. Like, of course I am. And me and Mike traveled, he traveled from DC, I was in Ohio. And if that doesn't show you how much we love Danica, I don't know what does because we wouldn't have missed that for the world.